Welcome to the Dacus Report, hosted by Pacific Justice Institute founder and president Brad Dacus. For 25 years, PJI has counseled, represented, and defended people whose religious freedoms, parental rights, or sanctity of life have been obstructed or violated, all free of charge. We leave no one behind and level the playing field for Americans as they are subjected to the tyranny of the powerful. Now, here's Brad Dacus. Welcome to the Dacus Report. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. In the second half of today's show, we're going to talk to our attorney who heads up one of our offices in Washington State about a new effort to restore parental rights at the ballot box. We're also going to talk about a recent Supreme Court case that was recently heard dealing with the deep state and the impact it can have on our religious freedoms, etc. So, you're not going to want to miss that. But in the first part of the program, I'd like to bring in the attorney who heads up our office in Arizona, Lynn Gore. Uh, Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Brad. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, you being here. And uh, we've got some exciting stuff to talk about. Uh, you and I both participated on a panel uh, not long ago, re- fairly recently, uh, in Arizona, there in Phoenix. It was the... <laughs> Turning Point USA conference called, uh, I think it's called a Marifest, right? Yes. Okay, and it was uh, very encouraging. There were like 13,000 people there. I I couldn't believe how many people were there. We did a breakout session. We had a a great attendance, and we covered a lot of uh, interesting information. Um, One of those things we really talked about was basically the rights of students uh, to be able to have an impact. As you know, we at Pacific Justice Institute have defended lots of students to be able to live their faith, whether it's being able to sing a, a Christian song at a talent show or uh, give uh, handout invitations to their, uh, to their, their Christmas event or uh, actually sharing the gospel uh, with their peers. We've been doing a lot of work in this regard, and we have some great resources. I know one of the basic issues was dealing with student groups in schools. So uh, what's, you know, a lot, a lot of these, these kids, you know, they, they, they want to start these Bible clubs, Christian groups, and, and yet they have a lot of pushback. So I know we wanted to give these, uh, these students throughout the country enlightenment about their right to have a student group and not to be uh, shut down willy-nilly because of the leftist administration. But uh, there's, there's a difference between the schools. So what's the difference between public schools and private schools with regards to the rights of students to start a, a student group reflective of their faith or, or convictions? Uh, well, the, before we start with that, uh, yeah, the AmeriFest and our panel specifically uh, brought in a lot of, of kids, uh, high school and college kids, and people involved in, in education. And so it was, it was helpful to explain to them what their rights are. And if people haven't been to AmeriFest before, I would encourage them to do it, especially high school, college kids, to learn more about their rights. So there is a difference between uh, the, uh, what happens in a public school and a private school. Now, uh, uh, public schools are pretty straightforward. There are laws that regulate uh, uh, what can be done uh, on a school. But as far as Christian clubs, Christian organizations, Christian meetings, or anything like that, those the Christians have to be treated the same way that any other group is treated. So if you've got a chess club 
and they meet in uh, a school building during school time or lunchtime uh, after school, then those same uh, accommodations need to be made available to Christian clubs. Um, and you're right, school administrators are ill-informed about what the law is in that area and oftentimes push back saying, well, we don't want to mix church and state, so therefore we need to keep the Christian school the club out of the school, but that's just wrong thinking. It's that's not been the law, right? Uh, and so, yeah, encourage yeah. people to, to to try to do what they can to set up whatever clubs that they can, or, or do whatever activities that are appropriate. Obviously, you can't. You know, you know, there are some limitations, but as long as the treatment is equal, we're good to go. Yeah, I know we at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, we've worked to. I help them uh, have the same rights of opportunities, and we talk about that in our book, Reclaim Your School, which people can download for free, by the way, on our website, pji.org. There's a whole chapter about uh, starting groups and their rights, all the things they can do. Just like you said, you know, if it's what's given to one group has to be given also to Christian groups. You can't you know, treat them differently. So these Christian clubs can bring in outside speakers. They can... Uh, they can also have a baccalaureate service they can sponsor during, say, lunchtime or right after school at, the, at their high school campus. Uh, there's a, a lot of great things that they can do. I know my wife and I, uh, in writing the book, after writing the book, we wanted to make an example of an actual revival rally or an outreach rally, if you will. So we went ahead and worked with our youth pastor of our church, and he worked with two students at a high school, Mesa Verde High School in Orangevale, California, near Sacramento. It's a secular school district. You know, Lynn, it's not like it's, you know, little town, Mayberry RFD, where everyone goes to church. I mean, this is the nation's capital, the state's capital of Sacramento area. And so we worked and we had a full-blown, what I call revival rally or outreach rally, evangelism rally, right in the, in the center of the school, the quad, uh, as the last... Uh, bell rang, this went on, the Christian band started playing, and then a youth evangelist preached the gospel, uh, Bibles were handed out to the kids, and uh, there were some administrators who weren't very happy about this, a lot of, you know, heavy teacher union-oriented uh, teachers who weren't very happy about it either. It didn't exactly go with their uh, radical uh, leftist agenda, uh, but we did it, and a gentleman from Southern California, Warren Willis, who just recently went on to be with the Lord, Lynn, he, he saw it, and he started this ministry called DecisionPoint.org, where they're helping to, to sponsor these all across the country. And I know in our Chicago office, our attorney there yeah, did a great job just this last year in breaking through 23 high schools in the Chicago area alone that were saying, oh, no, we're not going to allow you in. We're not going to allow you to do uh, any kind of outreach. We broke through with our attorney and we were successful for those, this ministry to be able to have a, a real strong, positive impact. So it's, it is very real. It's very substantive. And we have resources out there and organizations like Decision Point that are really uh, equipped and to, to help people do this stuff, uh, to bring it from theory to reality. Now, private schools, once again, that's, that's a totally different ballgame. They, they have more discretion as to what they will allow or won't allow, Right. That's correct because uh, you know when you when you 
choose to attend a private school, then you're, you've got to sort of play by their rules. So uh, I would urge parents and, and students to be very careful about what schools they choose and what uh, uh, what's going to be expected of them. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of problems with regard to Christians getting involved in private schools, but they but there's not a lot of legal avenues to address any problems there. So it, it, it kind of depends on what their policies and procedures are when you enroll your child in that school. So a little bit different, um, but, um, you know, even, even then I think that uh, if, they re, if they are educated and, and realize that, that these are helpful clubs for the kids, then uh, a, a lot of schools will go along with that. Sometimes there's not much we can do. Uh, except for pray about the situation. Right. I know. I, I just came back yesterday from a flight to uh, from Atlanta, Georgia. We had some great meetings there with uh, some of the uh, Korean uh, leaders in the Korean church and universities, uh, and also some uh, community leaders as well, Christian community leaders. And one thing I was really shocked to hear about is the fact that there's a number of schools, about seven, a very highly acclaimed uh, private quote-unquote, Christian schools. They're in the Atlanta area, and, and a very nice area, part of Atlanta, and everyone thinks they're Christian. They have a cross, and it says Judeo-Christian ethics and that kind of stuff. But I was really surprised to hear that these schools, all of these that were mentioned to me, are leftist. They're woke. They're CRT. They are LGBTQ, exclamation mark. And a lot of these parents don't even know about it. And these schools apparently, allegedly, have an arrangement so that if the parent, if the parent signs in writing that they agree not to ever say anything negative about the school or their child will be removed immediately. I mean, that's where it's at. So a lot of Christian parents are sort of you know, caught between a, you know, a, a terrible situation where on one hand, they, they want to speak up against this evil that has permeated these Atlanta, quote-unquote, Christian private schools. And at the same time, they don't want their child booted out of this high academic, great prep school for college and high-end universities. Uh, it's, a, it's a real problem for these uh, parents who are, you know, initially were thinking, oh, this is a, a wonderful Christian school, but the fact is, a lot of them are not. And uh, I know I've yet to find an Episcopal private Christian school that is solid in the word and not given into a heretical indoctrination. Maybe there's some, some good ones out there I, I, haven't, I haven't seen yet. But these aren't just Episcopal. These are some other ones as well that are purporting to be um, allegedly, quote-unquote, Christian. So uh, I didn't give any names of any. I'm not saying any by name. I encourage parents, instead, you guys do your homework Find out what your school stands for before you send your child there. That's, that's all I have to say. What about uh, uh, high schools, the difference between high schools and uh, colleges and, and universities? Uh, is, there, is there any difference between students' rights to evangelize or set up Christian groups in uh, high schools versus universities? Yeah, there are some, some slight differences. Now, uh, in a university setting, uh, you would imagine that it would be wide open, and again, there's there's pushback to that. The the law is that they that in a university setting, you know, you're supposed to have a free flow of ideas, debating uh, topics, even controversial topics like religion. 
And uh, that, that would be, that is in fact the law. Again, you'll get pushback from universities, uh, administrators who are, again, ignorant of the law, ignorant of the rights of the students. So the students need to stand up for themselves. And uh, uh, if they need assistance, they can call an organization like Pacific Justice Institute, and we can step in and usually with a letter uh, educating the, the administration, get whatever uh, accommodations are necessary for that Christian group. Uh, so that's one thing. High schools are a little different because the kids are, are a little not as mature and there there are going to be a little bit more restrictions but again the overall uh again the, the key is that that if they're doing it for one group then they have to do it for all the groups and that includes uh christian christian uh groups so yeah um, but there will be a, a few more restrictions on um you know when where how that uh those Things can be expressed because they there, there needs to be a little bit more um, control of what's going on in a high school because of the age of the kids. Well, Lynn, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you for the work you're doing for us there in Arizona. Uh, God bless you, and I look forward to our next time to, to talk. Great. Thank you very much, Brad. Take care. You too, Lynn. Did you know that PJI's Church Finds Its Voice initiative is a huge success and coming alongside pastors to encourage them to get all their congregants registered to vote and then to vote biblically in every election for candidates that share the Christian worldview and commit to serve their constituents with that mindset. Keep current on PJI's work on all the legal challenges we face on a daily basis by signing up for our Legal Insider email newsletter at pji.org. Now, back to the Dacus Report. Now, I'd like to bring to the program now Attorney Tracy Tribbett, who heads up one of our offices there in Washington State. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you notice I said one of our offices in Washington State. The state of Washington keeps us very, very busy. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff going on there. Oregon also. It, yes. We have so many cases there as well, keeping us very, very busy. Uh, so I, I, before we get into the cases and the, that we're dealing with, and particularly uh, one particular legal issue that's happening right now with the legislature and potentially the next election mm -hmm. in Washington State, I want to talk about something very macro, and that's a case pending before uh, the United States Supreme Court right now. As you and I both know, the deep state, if you will, has been a major problem. It's the fourth branch of government, the bureaucrats. And, you know, we're, whether we're talking about the FBI, the C, CIA, the, uh, you know, DEA, the EPA, whatever, they're like their own separate governments. It's like they're, they're doing their own thing. They're not held accountable. And people just feel helpless, right? I mean, that's, that's a real problem, isn't it? Absolutely, Brad. It's uh, agency alphabet soup. You can pick any three num uh, letters and put them together and you'll find a government agency. And I think what we have, you know, traditionally in the United States, what we see is separation of powers. You've got the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. The problem is that administrative law and administrative agencies have become the fourth branch of government, and they all and each contain their own executive, legislative, and judicial branch within themselves. Now, Tracy, have you seen this on a state level as well? We're not just talking about the feds, are we? 
No, absolutely not. So, uh, you know, there's the federal level that uh, that regulates federal laws, and then you've got the state regulation. And we've seen that, Brad, um, California, Oregon, Washington, every state across the country, that comes in the form of uh, the Department of Health, uh, the Department of Child and Youth and Families here in Washington State, which used to be CPS, um, that regulates a lot of the rights of our constituents and with which we are very concerned and, and constantly keeping tabs and watching to see what they're doing and how um, how the rights of families are playing out in agency law at the state and federal levels. Yeah, I remember in, I went to, to law school at the University of Texas, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never forget it where, uh, you know, I saw the, 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 in the library that, you know, these are all the, the codes, you know, these are all the codes, regulations for the state of Texas. So there were the codes, mm-hmm. and when I then went to California... And I took the bar there and became an attorney there as well. I noticed that the space used, you know, for, to have all the books with all the codes for California, it was four times more voluminous than, the te- than, the, uh, than, than Texas. In other words, there's, there's yeah. four times more mass of regulations and government codes and laws than there are in, in California than there are in Texas. And, you know, California is paying the price for it just as from an economic perspective, much less from just a, a freedom liberty perspective. Absolutely, Brad. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells when he um, talks about all the laws and, you know, everything that the, the Israelites were sort of burdened under. And he, he broke it down into, uh, you know, all the law of Moses and the prophets hangs on love God and love your neighbor. And in the United States, all of our laws should and do hang on the Constitution. And that should be the focus uh, with everything else sort of coming thereafter. But it seems and, and continues to be the fact that agencies put their administrative codes before people's constitutional rights. Now, the reason we're talking about this, Tracy, is not just because you and I have strong opinions about this subject. Um, it's, it's right now, the issue right now is being directly addressed by the United States Supreme Court. What's going on with the uh, Supreme Court right now that could uh, greatly change uh, the, uh, the status quo when it comes to the deep state? Yeah, this is a big deal, Brad. What we're seeing um, is actually a fight over fish. These small fish, herring fish, over on the East Coast are highly regulated by the EPA. And what happened was uh, the EPA instituted a law that these fishing boats had to have someone from the EPA not only on their boat, but they had to pay for those people upwards of $700 every day. And it was very uh, expensive for these fishing boats to have to bring these people on to regulate what they were doing and then pay their salaries and their expenses. And so what we see is two cases that are challenging the ability of the EPA, who basically made this law up. They just, you know, within the context of what Congress has apportioned to them, what Congress gave them the authority to do, they're going beyond that authority and they're drafting their own laws and putting their own expenses onto these fishermen. And so uh, it, it gets down to the Supreme Court seeing, okay, we're seeing a lot of issues with these cases involving agencies and what is called the Chevron Doctrine. And okay. so the Supreme Court. Okay, mm-hmm. so. We're, okay, so we're, we're, we had this case dealing with fish before the United States Supreme Court. Some people may be saying, well, that's a, that's a terrible injustice. Really have to pay someone to be on your fishing boat to regulate you? I mean, that, that's crazy. But 
What does it have to do with this show? What does it have to do with re- religious freedom? What say you? Absolutely. So the, the the issue at the heart of this case and thousands of other cases that deal with agency law and what we've been talking about is the Chevron doctrine. And basically that doctrine came out of a challenge, obviously by Chevron Oil Company, um, to the EPA that stated they were over-regulating and interpreting a law that was not correct or not in line with the authority that Congress had given them. And so that doctrine, with which courts use to interpret all agency law, states that um, obviously you read the text of what Congress has done and what authority they have given. If the con- the text is, um, you know, if it's absent or if it's ambiguous, then the courts are to defer to the agency. And this Chevron deference doctrine has basically uh, presumed that courts will always side with the agency because they are to defer to what they say. And so that's how it ties in for our purposes. Uh, you know, we deal with a lot of agencies at the federal and the state level, and it is, it's a hindrance to constitutional rights if parents go in to challenge something that an agency has done or an individual even to challenge that. And the court automatically under the Chevron doctrine has to defer to the agency. So that's the challenge here. Yeah, that, that's, that's crazy. I, I, I can't ever think of a situation when an agency reviewed a matter and said, oh, yes, um, we, we have been unreasonable. Yes, we're, we're unreasonable. We're going to regulate ourselves. We're going to limit ourselves. I mean, you know, the reality is, Tracy, I, a lot of these people, maybe the majority of them, I'm going to contend, um, who work for these regulatory agencies never had an actual job uh, dealing with those that they're regulating. You know, like, you know, how many people working for the Department of Agriculture have ever had a farm? Really? Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, how about it? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Number one, they are, have a major disconnect with the reality of what it is they're dealing with and the people's lives they're impacting and businesses. But number two is uh, there, we're basically expecting them to regulate themselves and uh, make sure that they're reasonable in what they do. I mean, absolute power corrupts absolutely, exclamation mark, when it comes to the bureaucrats of this country. I, I see this as really very problematic. What, what, what about you? Absolutely, Brad. In fact, I saw this play out firsthand at the state level during the pandemic, where uh, a private school was operating under its authority to keep school open. They had checks and balances in place. And the Washington State Agency, which regulates schools and private schools, um, unto themselves internally, they devised uh, new administrative codes. They were enforcing those administrative codes, and then they were adjudicating those administrative codes. And when we challenged what they were doing, the actual person who was our quote unquote judge was someone who had sat on the board to adopt and approve this code and had been instrumental in writing and drafting the code that they were now enforcing, all without public comment. And so you can see where this starts to, to seep into at, at every level of um, of American life. It will affect it. And these agencies, like we talked about earlier, don't have any separation of powers. And it's very dangerous. So I really hope that the Supreme Court begins to curtail this Chevron doctrine. Well, I can imagine that, uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit in the past, as well as, you know, the, the courts in Washington state have probably been very quick to just be very deferential to the bureaucrats and just say, hey, you know, if you think that that applies to the law, if you think the law allows you to to do this and do that, 
Um, yeah, we'll, we'll defer. We'll defer. I mean, that's, that's what we've seen in the past, right? Well, actually, Brad, it's interesting. You would, you would think that that would be the natural inclination given uh, the liberality in the Ninth Circuit and in Washington. However, in the Ninth Circuit, there's a couple of cases that directly cite to the Chevron Doctrine, but back off of it and follow more of the Marbury versus Madison case law that says, you know, the judicial arm is the arm that interprets the law. And we're not going to automatically defer to bureaucrats, to agencies. And especially in Washington state, that is true, where they have not explicitly adopted the Chevron doctrine. And so I'll be very interested to see, uh, you know, with what the Supreme Court rules, how that affects what the Ninth Circuit is already doing. And in Washington state, a curtailing of that power and authority under Chevron um, hopefully will just continue to justify the positions that Washington state has already taken um, in many instances. Um, Tracy, I appreciate the work that you're doing there in Washington State for so many. Uh, Keep it up, and I look forward to our next time to talk. Thank you, Brad. It's been an honor. We would love the opportunity to continue to serve you. Just visit pji.org and click the Legal Insider button to sign up for our email newsletter. At PJI, we help individual employees, employers, business owners, pastors, students, citizens of every stripe through our practical resources, counsel, representation, and defense all free of charge at pji.org. PJI is an island of stability and assurance in our ever-churning sea of legal and societal chaos. We are here for you. So folks, just remember, it's our God-given freedoms we're talking about. Now, let's choose to keep them. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's continue the fight for your freedoms.